Good morning. Um, so before I read the scripture, I'd like to go ahead and introduce the person who's going to be preaching this morning. So as many of you know, Kevin's out this week, and we're going to be taking a break from our regular series. Um, and Joe Johnson from RUF and Mississippi State is going to be here to preach for us today. So uh, he very graciously and helpfully um, stepped up when Kevin asked him to. So we're very thankful for him. Uh, I myself go to RUF and am pretty involved with it. Um, so I have the privilege of getting to hear Joe preach uh, every Thursday night. And we all get the privilege of hearing him this morning. So um, give him a warm welcome. He normally goes to Grace, but he's here with us today. And uh, um, I just know it'll be good. So be sure to come meet him after the service. Uh, the scripture today is Romans 12, 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Good morning. It is, uh, it is good to be here this morning. And um, I hate the reason for being here, um, praying for the shoemaker. It sounds like everything's going well. But I am using the excuse to just be excited to be at Redeemer. I've never been here before. I have only been in Starkville for um, like eight or nine months. I'm the new campus minister with RUF. But I look out and see a few friends and a lot of our students, and that warms um, my heart. Uh, RUF, if you don't know, Reform University Fellowship. Uh, we've been on the campus of Mississippi State. This is the 46th year and um, in my first fall. And one of the things we love to see is students in churches. Um, one of the things we actually don't want, one of our um, measures of success that we don't sort of buy into is we don't just want a four-year spiritual high with students. We want to reach them for Jesus, see them fall more in love with Jesus, and therefore be equipped to serve his church, not for the four or five or six years of college, whatever it might be, but for the rest of their life. And even meeting people this morning who were students at RUF who are now serving in this congregation, um, I love that. Uh, that's what we look for. When you ask how college ministry is going, the answer usually is, I don't know, but I'll know in 30 years to see what our students are doing in the church. So thank you for being a church that loves Jesus and loves Starkville and loves Mississippi State students. Um, I'm encouraged by that. Um, but I'm not here just to thank you a bunch, um, though you might like that. Uh, I'm also here to preach. And so we're going to be in that Romans 12 passage that Jake just read a few minutes ago. It sounds to me like you just finished a series in the Minor Prophets, and you're about to start what I believe Ecclesiastes next week, which I'd be pretty excited about. Um, so Kevin kind of said, do, like, do whatever you want, which is a favorite thing for preachers to hear. I can do whatever I want. Uh, but we're choosing a passage this morning that I love and return to quite often because it's a passage that gives me great hope on how Jesus transforms his people into new beings. Uh, Romans, just so the context before we dive in, Romans is uh, the longest of Paul's letters in the New Testament, 16 chapters in total, uh, but it's really divided into two parts. The first part is Romans 1 through 11, where Paul unpacks what the gospel is, gospel explained, doctrine after doctrine, truth after truth of what Jesus has done to save his people, to clothe them in his righteousness. 
uh, to claim them in a love that you cannot lose, life in the spirit, in both life and death, that he is ours forever. But then in chapter 12, through the end of the book, he turns his attention, not really to gospel explained anymore, but now to gospel applied. How do we change as his people, as his bride? And Paul actually uses the word being transformed. What does that change, that transformation look like? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help, and then we'll get into it together. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. This is your word, and we desperately need it. It's living and active. And so, Lord, mold and shape our hearts to make us into who you would have us be. And Jesus, let us see you more clearly this morning and find you more beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, everything in my house changed. Um, the culture of the house, the vibe of the house, the emotions of the house, everything. And it all changed with one of my children learning one word. She was three at the time. And that one word is a very powerful word, a controlling word. And the word she learned was Alexa. My daughter learned how to control Alexa. And that is how we play our music at our house. And we have music on all the time, listen to all kinds of stuff. We love music on in the background. But when she learned that word, uh, the two most popular albums that we've listened to over the past two years is Frozen 1 and Frozen 2. No matter what I play, what I have on in the kitchen, it'll change within five minutes to those two albums. So I open with that because I'm about to use a Frozen illustration, and I wanted you to know why, right? I, I would love to bring a New York Times article to you or some research on some university somewhere, but we have Frozen this morning. So uh, Frozen 1, the album, there is a song called Fixer Upper. Uh, not one of the main ones, a really funny one though. And it's always stuck out to me. It's a song trying to convince two people to sort of fall in love. It's a song that always stuck out to me because of something that it says about how people change, or more accurately, how people don't change. So this is a little weird, but go with me here. I'm going to read uh, part of the song, what you thought was going to happen in church this morning. This is from Frozen. Uh, we're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. We're only saying that love's a force that is powerful and strange. People make bad choices if they're mad or scared or stressed. Throw a little love their way, and you'll bring out their best. True love brings out their best. Everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper. That's what it's all about. Father, sister, brother, we need each other to raise us up, round us out. Everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper, but when push comes to shove, the only fixer-upper fixer to fix a fixer-upper is true love. Uh, amen. Go in peace. You've heard your word this morning from the movie Frozen. We love Frozen. We'll watch it later this week, and it's wonderful. But there's something in those words that actually makes me quite sad because it's a pretty dark view on how people change. People don't change. And the best you can hope for is to love them, and maybe the best of them comes out. And I sometimes wonder if we think of Christianity like that. That deep heart change, deep heart transformation is not really something we should expect in the Christian life, but that maybe Christianity will just bring out our best to round us out a little bit, to make us a little more ethical, a little more good. But I can't expect like the deepest parts of me to change on this side of eternity. And I wonder if, if you think about your life the way I do, that one of the most frustrating parts of the Christian life is to see a lack of change 
over the years. I heard John Piper say once that the thing that brings the most doubt to his heart about the Christian faith is not some argument against the existence of God, and it's not some horrible traumatic event that's come in his life. The thing that brings the most doubt to his heart is when he looks at his life, he sees a lack of sanctification, a lack of Christian growth. And I wonder if we're all in that boat too. That when you look at your life, you you look at sins that you struggle with at a young age, as a teenager, and you're still struggling with those. Shouldn't we be better by now? That you look at your anger problem, and you kind of think, shouldn't I have a grip on this? But actually, I feel like I'm in less control than I've ever been. Or we look at our anxiety problems. And no matter how many times we read that verse that Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about tomorrow, we're still anxious about tomorrow. It's arguably gotten worse. How do we change as Jesus' people? Well, I hope we find a good deal of hope in these two verses where Paul tells us that the gospel that saves us is the gospel that changes us. It transforms us. It is a new power to conquer sin, to live for Jesus. But that transformation, that change, is not what we expect it to be. Because it's a deeper work. It's a slower work. That God's not satisfied with superficial change. He's changing us from the inside out. And so this morning, I just want to ask the question, What does gospel change look like? And how do we grow? So what does gospel change? Three things as we walk through these two verses. That gospel change we're all yearning for, first, begins and ends with grace. It's all about grace. Second, gospel change takes place in all of our life. And third, it's a slow and deep work. It's all about grace. It's all of our life. And it's all together slow. So first, gospel change is all about grace. Again, these are transitional verses from part one of Romans to part two of Romans, but here's what Paul's not doing. Paul is not doing, okay, so we've talked about Jesus for 11 chapters. That's enough. Now let's talk about what you do. Now let's talk about how you clean up your life. He's not. Because the reason why he started with 11 chapters on what the gospel is, is now he's saying, Because that's true, because what Jesus has done for you, now let's talk about what else is true. You are different. You are new. The Holy Spirit is in you. There is a new power. We know he's rooting all of these imperatives, all of these commands, all of these applications in what Jesus has done because of that one word, therefore. Since Jesus has done what he's done, therefore you're new. Since you're clothed in his righteousness, therefore you live a new life. Since Jesus has done everything that you need in the gospel to be rescued, to be saved, to be redeemed, therefore let's talk about the new life that's been given to you. He roots it all in the grace of Jesus. But not just because of that one word, therefore, but also in this beautiful prepositional phrase, by the mercies of God. I love that little phrase. It almost can be a throwaway as you kind of read through this, but I love this phrase so much because it's so unnecessary. He doesn't need to say it. Why? Because he's just talked about the mercies of God for 11 chapters. 
on and on about what Jesus has done for his people, on and on about his righteousness, on and on about what we get because of what Jesus has done. And it's as if Paul, before he goes to these chapters of imperatives, these chapters of life changes, these chapters of applications, it's as if he can't resist to appeal to the mercy of God one more time that this is not about you, This is not about your abilities. This is all rooted in the grace of God for his people. Gospel change begins with grace. And the Christian life is a posture of by the mercies of God, isn't it? Isn't that where it all begins? To throw ourselves at the mercy seat of God? By the mercy of God, we're here today. That we have breath in our lungs today. By the mercy of God, we have our families. By the mercy of God, every day on this side of hell is pure and utter grace. Because when we think about our life and what needs to change, I think the first thing we have to see is we can't do it. On my own, I can't do anything about my sin. On my own, I can't do anything about my anxiety or my anger. But by the mercy of God, there's hope for sinners. By the mercy of God, we have the ability to see change in our life. But this makes us deeply uncomfortable. Because gospel change, we want it to begin with, okay, here's how I do it. But that's not the Christian life. It actually begins with our need. Uh, A couple years ago, our students are probably really tired of hearing this, but a couple years ago, I broke a bone in my knee. Um, doing something that campus ministers should never do, which is to try to keep up with 18-year-olds in your 30s. And for 12 weeks, I'm not saying this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world, but for 12 weeks, um, I couldn't walk. I uh, crutches or just kind of sitting on the couch. We also had a six-week-old baby at the time, which was not ideal timing for my wife. And so for 12 weeks, I had to do the thing that makes me more uncomfortable than anything else. I had to ask for things. I had to show my need that I'm actually so able to hide most of the time. Uh, my wife had to go upstairs to the church to get my books so I continue my job. I had to ask people to mow my yard because I couldn't do it. Uh, I, had to, um, I had to ask my three-year-old daughter to carry things for me because she was faster and stronger than me. Uh, I, uh, I went to restaurants and old ladies would hold the door open for me. It was 12 weeks of me not being able to hide my weakness. And I hated it. And I never want to go through it again, but it was actually one of the greatest things for my spiritual life because that's actually the reality of my heart. I can't do anything. That without Jesus, I'm doomed to failure. Yet by the mercy of God, there's hope. To begin gospel change, where do you need to go to Jesus even today with something to say, I can't fix this. I can't fix my marriage. I can't deal with this loneliness or depression. I, I don't know what to do, but by mercy, God, help me. Gospel change begins and ends with grace. That there's more grace in Jesus than sin in you, and that's our great hope. Begins and ends with grace. But secondly, gospel change also encompasses all of life. So Paul finally gets to an imperative, and we want imperatives, right? You want the pastor to get to the point in the sermon where he just tells you to do something. 
We want Paul to finally say, okay, okay, we get the theology. Tell me what to do. So he finally gets to his first imperative in this section. And this is it. Verse one, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's what we want Paul to say. Make sacrifices. We want him to say, bring sacrifices. We want him to say, give 10% of your money to the church and give this much time to the church and the work of ministry to stop doing these lists of activities and to start doing these lists of activities. We want him to say, bring sacrifices. But it's not what he says. He says to be a sacrifice. To present your bodies, the physical manifestation of who you are to this world, to King Jesus, yielding it up to him that actually what we think he has in mind here is a a sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system called the whole burnt offering, which is a sacrifice given to God that's wholly consumed by fire with nothing left. All of it is given to the Lord. That what Paul's calling us here is to give all of ourselves, every conversation, every thought, everything that we do, every encounter that we have, everything that comes out of our mouth, everything that goes into our ears, everything that we are from our jobs, the most important things we do to changing diapers and tying our shoes, that everything is to be yielded up to King Jesus. But why would Paul start this second half of Romans with something that's impossible to do? How do we do this? All of us are busy and stressed out. All of us have a lot of things to do. Why would he ask us to do this? Well, the thing we have to see is that Jesus never asks us to do something that he hasn't already done for us. That he calls us to be his living sacrifices. Why? Because he was our dying sacrifice. That the second person of the Trinity, from glory and perfection, chose a sinful people to come in the form of man, 100% God, 100% man, impossible to comprehend, absolutely true, to come to this place, to mourn with his people, to dine with his people, to laugh with his people, to heal his people, but ultimately to go on the cross for behalf of his people, to take the wrath of God for them, then to raise again in newness of life, to promise resurrection and hope for his people, then to ascend to the right hand of God the Father where he's doing what right now? Interceding on behalf of his people. Jesus gives all of himself to his bride, all of them. And so when he looks at us, he's not just concerned about a little bit of you. He's concerned about all of you all of you, to see you redeemed and reconciled and made new. And here's why this is good news. Because Paul says it's our spiritual worship. It's it's actually kind of a bad translation. It really should be true or reasonable worship. That in other words, this is why you were made, to serve the good king, to give all of your life to him. Because we will only begin to be living sacrifices for Jesus when we see that he's actually worthy of our sacrifice. One of my favorite things about being a campus minister, I use that phrase a lot, I love my job, but one of my favorite things is to see students get engaged, 
um, but not really for the reason you think, though I love doing weddings and premarital counseling and the, the wedding itself is fun. I love seeing what happens college guy when he gets engaged. It's a complete and utter transformation. He goes from a guy who may or may not be going to class, uh, who may or may not be changing his bedsheets yearly, to a guy who all of a sudden starts working, getting a job, saving money for maybe the first time in his life. And he saves all of this money to then go to a jewelry store, which he's never been before in his life, to get this tiny thing that he cares nothing about. To then go and ask her father for her hand, which is horribly scary. To then orchestrate these crazy proposals that involve photographers and parties and secrecy and all this stuff. To then give that ring away with no financial return on that investment whatsoever. That's a lot of sacrificing, isn't it? But why does he do it? We all know. That's what you do when you find something of infinite value. You'll do anything to get it. Those aren't sacrifices for him. He does them with a smile on his face because he's found something, someone that he cannot live without. That when we begin to see Jesus's perfection, his beauty, his grace, what he's done for his people, all of a sudden it begins to make sense. This is the one I was made to give myself to. What is it that holds us back from that? Uh, my pastor in college was a man named Sinclair Ferguson, and he used to say that God pokes and prods at your heart. And what he's doing is he's looking for the sore spots. He's looking for the places that you say, God, you can have everything, but you can't have that. He's not doing it to hurt us. He's doing it because he loves us. What is that for you? What do we struggle with putting in an open hand to say, Jesus, I love this thing. I love my family. I love my job. I love my money. I love all these things that are fine and good. But Jesus, they are ultimately yours. And can I be vulnerable for a moment? What would be in my hand is my ministry. I want it to look a certain way. I want it to have a certain look. But it's really Jesus's. Do whatever you wish with it. What do you need to put in your hand like that? It's hard. It's scary. But what if he's the good king that we were made to give ourselves over to? Gospel change is all about grace. It also encompasses all of our life. But then lastly, and probably most frustrating point of the morning, it happens slowly. It is a slow and deep work. Uh, Paul in verse 2 goes on to tell us a little bit more about this transformation, this change that's taking place in Christ's people. And he says this, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be transformed by, by this to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Uh, two imperatives, one positive, one negative, both passive, if you notice. But in other words, they're happening to us. That everyone in this world is either looking more and more like the world or more and more like Jesus. And so he warns us first, don't be conformed to this world. And we know exactly what this means, right? 
being conformed and sort of molded and shaped to look a certain way, to, to believe the world's uh, ideals on truth and success and beauty, to live up to the standard that's put upon us in this world, to feel the pressure to look a certain way, to be a certain way, to believe a certain way. And if we're actually not thoughtful of it, it's happening. And it's exhausting and hopeless. But Paul says there's another way. There's another action happening upon God's people, and it's this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, transformed is a, uh, is a more powerful word than conformed. Again, conformed is being molded and shaped. Transformed is a supernatural thing that happens. That in Christ's people, something is happening that, that, that's not us, that Jesus is doing, that by his spirit, he is transforming us. But here's the question, how do we do it? How do we do something that's happening to us? This grammar actually doesn't make sense. Well, Paul gives us a little bit more, that this transformation takes place by the renewal of your mind. That it's actually a rewiring of how we think, of how we will, of what we desire. And that happens by living in a world full of lies and giving ourselves over to truth. It's what we're doing right now. It's why we gather and sing the song that we sing. We, we sing the Bible. We pray the Bible. We hear the Bible read. We hear the Bible preached. We go to the table with both word and sacrament that we're in front of the living and active God that transforms his people. That the Christian life is not trying to bend God's will to us, but him bending our will to his, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to live for what we were made for by him to be renewed by his truth, by his love, by his gospel, by his grace. But it happens slow. Because again, God is not satisfied with superficial change. He wants you changed from the inside out, starting with your desires. And it's deep and it's painfully slow. So what does it look like? I had a seminary professor who got his PhD overseas, and he, told, he used to tell this story quite often, that he was in a church serving um, that's on the outskirts of town. It was more of a rural community, farming community. And there was a woman in this church who um, was like a pillar of the church. Um, everyone's mother uh, loved Jesus, was there every time the doors were open, um, and, and her husband never came. Uh, he was not a Christian and actually known around town as a pretty harsh man. And one day the church uh, had an evangelistic event. She brought her husband, forced him to come. Uh, and there he heard the gospel and was converted. Uh, that Jesus saved him, brought him into the church, baptized him, was being discipled, was growing. And a couple years in, he comes home from work. He was a farmer. And he closes door, slams the door shut. And his wife turns around and asks him, what's wrong? He said, what's wrong? What's wrong is that I've been angry all day. From the moment that I got up to this moment now, that I've been mad at everyone. I've been mad at you. I've been mad at me. I've been mad at everyone that I work with. I've been mad at the work itself. I'm kind of mad at the church. I have been angry all day. And I don't know how Jesus is supposed to work, but I have been following him for two years, and I'm more angry today than I've ever been before. I don't think it's working. And his wife smiles and looks at him and says, I have seen you come home angry every day of our marriage. 
but I've never seen you come home upset that you were angry. I've never even seen you notice that you were angry. Maybe that's Jesus. Look, what renewal of the mind looks like is not usually this all of a sudden event where we're changed completely in a moment. What this transformation sometimes looks like is slowly seeing your will bent to God's. Slowly seeing a sensitivity to sin that you never saw before. That all of a sudden that neighbor that you know that doesn't know Jesus and you've never thought twice about evangelism, all of a sudden you have a sensitivity to that and you want them to know Jesus. That's not just you. That's the spirit renewing your mind, bending your will to God's. Then maybe there's that person that just (laughs) annoys you. Can I say that? That you don't want to be around. And all of a sudden you begin to like feel love towards them and you're worried about them, and you you want to see if they're okay. Like, that's not just you coming up with a good idea. That's the renewal of your mind by the work of the Spirit. That he is at work in his people. And it is sometimes painful and hard, and you feel like you're taking four steps forward and 15 steps backward. But that's how God works, isn't it? That sometimes I actually wanted Jesus to work in my life like a back massage. And he often works in it like open heart surgery without anesthesia. But it's because he loves me. Can you see that renewal happening? Can you look at your life and see these marks of redemption and marks of grace? Because the promise is true. He is at work in his people. That the same Paul in Philippians 1 says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It will happen. It is sure. And that, Paul says also, 1 Corinthians, that he is growing us from one degree of glory to the next. And as a church, Redeemer, I'm not a part of this church, wish I was, it's a great church. Isn't it amazing that y'all get to do that together? To see the Spirit at work, renewing your minds together, and seeing the change that takes place that's deep and good, but sometimes slow. Take hope, Redeemer. God is at work. And you are being changed and shaped in Jesus. And one day, someday, he will present you spotless, blameless, perfect in his presence. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, this is sometimes really hard to believe. Um, We pray, Lord, that we are able to see your marks of redemption and grace that we are able to see how you work in our lives uh, when it's not really what we expect, that you give us a sensitivity to being transformed. Uh, Lord, help us to love what you love, to hate what you hate, to live for what you've made us to live for. And Jesus, to see you so beautiful that we're able to give our whole lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.